This is the World in Brief from The Economist. Our top stories. In an 80-minute phone call with Vladimir Putin, France's president, Emmanuel Macron, and Germany's chancellor, Olaf Scholz, urged the Russian president to enter, quote, serious direct negotiations with Volodymyr Zelensky, his Ukrainian counterpart. The two Western leaders also called on Mr. Putin to release the 2,500 Ukrainian fighters taken prisoner after surrendering at the Azovstal Steelworks in the southern port of Mariupol. Meanwhile, Russian forces seemingly continued to make progress in the Donbas region of southeastern Ukraine. Russia's defense ministry said they had captured Liman in Donetsk province, a strategically valuable town because of its railway junction and access to rail and road bridges. On Saturday, Mr. Putin signed a law that allows people over 40 years old to enlist in Russia's armed forces. Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas, said he was, quote, livid about the police's response to a mass shooting at a school on Tuesday. Officers waited an hour after arriving at the school before confronting the gunman. Donald Trump told the National Rifle Association's annual convention in Houston that the, quote, existence of evil was, quote, no reason to disarm law-abiding citizens. The ex-president criticized Democrats for wanting tighter gun controls and Mr. Abbott for withdrawing from the event. The UN's human rights chief, Michelle Bachelet, said at the end of a visit to China that she had raised concerns with the country's leadership about its treatment of Uyghur Muslims in Xinjiang. The western region houses forced labor sites and, quote, re-education camps where millions of Uyghurs have been detained. China denies human rights violations. Western ambassadors have largely resisted invitations to visit because they do not want to be used for propaganda. China's foreign minister, Wang Yi, visited Samoa, where he signed an economic and technical cooperation agreement with the Pacific Islands leaders. Mr. Wang, who was on a 10-day tour of the region, then headed for Fiji. China's diplomatic push in the Pacific has caused alarm in Australia and New Zealand. In March, the Solomon Islands signed a security agreement with China. America imposed new sanctions on entities linked to North Korean's weapons program, including two Russian banks and a North Korean company. North Korea has recently increased its testing of rockets, including banned intercontinental ballistic missiles, and is preparing to test a nuclear device, according to the South Korean government. On Thursday, China and Russia vetoed implementing stricter sanctions through the United Nations Security Council. Japan said that it would accept some tourists again, having kept its borders closed for two years in response to COVID-19. Visitors from 98 countries and regions will be allowed as part of tour groups from June 10th, though some may have to quarantine. Travel restrictions for foreign residents, business travelers, and international students have already been relaxed. And word of the week, Jubilee, a celebration of stasis. Britain is preparing to mark the Queen's 70 years on the throne. And now, here's a deeper look at the day ahead. Colombia's dangerously polarized election. On Sunday, Colombians go to the polls to choose a new president in the most important election in the country's recent history. Gustavo Petro, a former guerrilla, hopes to become Colombia's first ever leftist president. 
He has promised a job guarantee, free university tuition, and a ban on new exploration of oil and gas, which make up half the country's exports. These policies could cost 5.5% of GDP over four years. Mr. Petro hopes to find the money by raising taxes and reforming pensions. Other contenders include Frederico Gutierrez, an establishment candidate who represents a coalition of right-wing parties, and Rodolfo Hernandez, a populist outsider running as an independent. Mr. Petro leads the race, but is unlikely to win the 50% of votes needed to avoid a runoff. Mr. Hernandez's surging support means the pair could meet again on June 19th. The campaign has been tense. Mr. Petro has received death threats. A close result could be disputed, and that risks trouble. Israelis and Palestinians brace for trouble. The anniversary on Sunday of Israel's capture of the eastern part of Jerusalem during the Six-Day War in 1967 is commemorated very differently. Israelis celebrate the unification of their capital as, quote, Jerusalem Day. But to Palestinians, it was the start of 55 years of military occupation. One of the most contentious Israeli celebrations is the, quote, flag march, organized by right-wing activists. Its route, through Palestinian parts of the city, is a source of tension and often violent clashes. Last year, the Israeli government changed the route at the last moment, but that didn't stop Hamas, the Islamist organization that rules the Palestinian enclave of Gaza, from launching rockets into Israel, sparking an 11-day war. Under pressure from the right wing of his precarious coalition, Israel's Prime Minister, Naftali Bennett, this year intends to revert to normal. Even as 3,000 police officers try to prevent violence in Jerusalem, eyes will be on Gaza as well. The India Premier League scores big. Few moments in cricket are as exciting as watching a batsman belt the last ball of a run chase for six to win the match. Last month, Rahul Tewatia, an Indian player, hit two sixes off the last two balls of a game to secure victory for his team, Gujarat Titans. On Sunday, the Titans take on the Rajasthan Royals in the final of the Indian Premier League, cricket's glitziest tournament. Expect delirium at the 132,000-seater Narendra Modi Stadium in Gujarat, now the biggest cricket ground in the world. Seeing the game played live is especially welcome after two years of COVID-19, during which matches were played in near-empty grounds with pre-recorded crowd noise. Over 400 million viewers tuned in to watch each of the last four editions of the tournament. Small wonder media companies won a piece of the action. Next month, Reliance, Amazon, and Disney are expected to compete to bid more than $5 billion for the right to broadcast the IPL from 2023 to 2027. With that kind of money, the Indian Cricket Board has hit a sweet spot. New York's Blue Note Festival hits the right notes. One of jazz's most enduring legends began in 1939, when two German-Jewish exiles, Alfred Lyon and Francis Wolff, founded Blue Note Records in New York City. It was to become the most successful label in jazz history. The record label is now part of Universal, a music giant, but the Blue Note Club, an intimate venue in Greenwich Village, is still independently owned. Opened in 1981, the club's reputation has kept on growing. 
In 2011, its owners founded the Blue Note Jazz Festival. That has grown steadily too. It now lasts for the whole of June. The Blue Note brand draws top acts to the citywide festival, while free outdoor gigs attract a diverse audience. This year, these include concerts in Central Park by Herbie Hancock, a celebrated pianist, on June 11th, and the George Clinton and Parliament Funkadelic Collective on June 15th. On June 1st, Robert Glasper, a pianist and arranger who described jazz as the, quote, mother of hip-hop, will headline a new stage in Washington Square Park. Weekend Profile, Sir Michael Lockett, Britain's official party monster. Who better to portray Queen Elizabeth II than a 22-year-old Singaporean dancer? On June 5th, Janice Ho will play the future monarch as a young princess, dancing with a 21-foot-tall dragon puppet in an elaborate pageant in central London to mark the climax of the Platinum Jubilee celebrations. Miss Ho was selected for the role, say the organizers, to reflect the, quote, makeup of Britain and London today. Following more traditional fairs such as military bands, the dragon dance sets the tone for a day-long carnival, the highlight of four days of hoopla and holiday to celebrate the 70th anniversary of the Queen's ascension to the throne. And, as so often for such national events, Sir Michael Lockett will be at the heart of it all. Meanwhile, some 150 official, quote, national treasures, including fellow nonagenarian Sir David Attenborough, will help Her Majesty party. There will be a retro fashion show of Britain's, quote, tribes, jivers, punks, and ravers, and an interpretation of the 1953 coronation in, quote, Afro-Caribbean style. Finally, the Queen will be serenaded by Ed Sheeran, a pop star. This eclectic mix of ancient and modern, pomp and pop, flair and tradition has become the hallmark of Britain's post-imperial ceremonies, and Sir Michael has been involved in almost all of them. The lean, unassuming 74-year-old is at the helm of this pageant as co-chairman. He also helped steer the Golden Jubilee concerts at Buckingham Palace in 2002 and the Diamond Jubilee's Thames River pageant 10 years later. Sir Michael's events company also helped organize the opening and closing ceremonies of the London Olympics in 2012. He opened the Shard and oversaw the inaugural New Year's Eve fireworks at the London Eye. The country rarely parties without Sir Michael. He admits to being an, quote, obsessive, waking up in the small hours to worry about his to-do list. The son of an army officer, Sir Michael chose to go straight into business rather than attend university. He says that storytelling is the most important means of communication, and on June 5th, he hopes to be telling the story not just of, quote, an incredible life, but also, quote, the second Elizabethan age. The winners of this week's quiz. Thank you to everyone who took part in this week's quiz. The winners, chosen at random from each continent, were Asia, Izumiwaki, Tokyo, Japan. North America, Jane Gose, Kihei, Hawaii, United States. Central and South America, Celso Covre, Brasilia, Brazil. Europe, Marga Peters, Amsterdam, the Netherlands. Africa, Machaba Sathika, Klerksdorp, South Africa. Oceana, Linda Hazelhurst, Sydney, Australia. They all gave the correct answers of Jimmy Stewart, Avro Lancaster, Hanover, Paul Tudor Jones, and Windsor Knott. The theme is British royal houses. Stewart, 
Lancaster, Hanover, Tudor, and Windsor. Weekly Crossword Welcome to our new crossword, designed for experienced cruciverbalists and newcomers alike. Both sets of clues give the same answers. Cryptic Clues One down. Lancasterian town where sheep droppings come from. Ten. One across. Boris hides inside Indian sage. Five. Two across. Fab South forms German world beater. Four. Three across. Irish County Romeo gets a dressing. Five. Quick clues. One down. Where Britain saw roistering in 1809. Ten. One across. Tory windfall exploiter. Five. Two across. The world's largest chemicals company. Four. Three across. What Gustavo Petro was in Bogota. Five. Email all four answers by 9 a.m. BST on Monday to crossword at economist.com, along with your home city and country. We will pick randomly from those with the right answers and crown one winner per continent in Friday's edition. Finally, here's the quote of the day from Maya Angelou. There is no greater agony than bearing an untold story inside you. That's the World in Brief from The Economist, available three times every day of the week. You can also hear interviews and analysis from our journalists, including our current affairs podcast, The Intelligence, on your podcast app. And subscribers to The Economist have access to each week's full edition in audio. Just download The Economist app to start listening.